Welcome to this edition of Rail Group On Air, our podcast series, which is presented to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Vantuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. This is part of our series with the Commuter Rail Coalition, facilitated by Kellyanne Gallagher. Kellyanne, thank you so much for putting this together for us. My guest is Rich Dalton, who has spent the past 11 years with the Virginia Railway Express, or the VRE, as uh, Deputy CEO and Chief Operating Officer and Acting CEO. Uh, But now he was just appointed in the past few weeks as the CEO and General Manager. Rich is an experienced rail operations veteran. He led VRE's multi-year effort to implement positive train control And in April 2019, VRE became the nation's sixth rail system out of some uh, 44-odd systems uh, uh, required to uh, to implement PTC uh, to actually have PTC fully operational. Prior to joining VRE, Rich spent 19 years with uh, locomotive manufacturer MPI, uh, which is uh, Wabtec subsidiary, Motor Power Industries. Rich is also a military veteran, having, having served as a petty officer in the United States Navy. Uh, he holds a bachelor's and master's degree in business administration from Sam Houston State University. So, Rich, uh, welcome to, uh, to Rail Group On Air. Very, very pleased to, uh, to have you here. Congratulations on your appointment as, uh, as uh, the guy, uh, general manager and, uh, and CEO of uh, Virginia Railway Express. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity. Glad to be here, and and uh, I too thank uh, Kelly Ann for uh, for putting uh, putting this together. We're happy to have the opportunity to give uh, you this forum to lay out what uh, your plans are for VRE. So thanks for joining us, Rich. So the first thing we have to talk about, this is a question we ask everybody, uh, COVID-19, how is the recovery going at this point for VRE? Yeah, so let me, let me just first start, just kind of set the stage a little bit where we, where we were at pre-COVID and then, uh, then where we're at today. Um, obviously, pre-COVID, VRE operated uh, what we would consider a normal service, uh, 32 trains a day at about 18,000 average daily riders. Uh, And then once the uh, national health emergency uh, was declared, uh, it didn't take us but a couple of days uh, to frankly be at an average daily ridership of about 500 people. Actually, we hit 400 people on an average daily ridership perspective. So we reduced our service level to what we call an S schedule. And uh, we've effectively been operating at a reduced service level or an S schedule since that time. Um, we have added uh, an additional round trip train back. Uh, we did that in July. And uh, so we're at 18, 18 trains a day. Um, and we're currently in that, uh, I want to say, in that 13 to 1400 average daily riders per day. So uh, we are, uh, from a ridership standpoint, we are we are gaining or increasing, but I like to say we're increasing ridership one at a time uh, to get back to, uh, you know, at some point those pre-COVID levels. 
traffic appears to be uh, appears to be slowly returning to normal. Uh, of course, we don't know uh, what's going to happen if if there is a second wave, and we're starting to see uh, some evidence of that. Unfortunately, you have any any thoughts on that? Just uh, you know, I'll I'll go back again. Um, you know, as as this region started to open up in their defined phases, you know, phase one, phase two, our ridership again had increased. Of course, that gave us the opportunity to implement some very important uh, health and safety measures on board our trains because we knew that uh, even from the onset of 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 this uh, pandemic, we knew that. Um, you know, the return of ridership was going to be somewhat tough for us. In other words, there was going to be a stigma attached to public transportation and VRE was not going to be excluded from that stigma. So we spent a lot of time, um, a lot of effort into ensuring that we had processes and protocols in place well ahead of, of the return of ridership. We established some welcome back campaigns. We're currently currently doing that uh, uh, and, and actually have elevated those campaigns uh, post Labor Day. But to get back to your get back to your question, what what we're seeing a majority of our ridership or about seventy percent of our ridership is uh, is is attached to the federal government. So, uh, as the federal government in some areas have have returned workers at a very minimal amount, uh, some of the projected more aggressive returns from what what is now predominantly a telecommute uh, environment um, you know those those have been somewhat delayed if you will um, and and but at the same time if you look in our region you know from a you know just from a travel behavior standpoint you know the interstates are getting you know uh, I use the word congested um, because I kind of live out in the country a little bit. So, uh, so those, you know, I-95 is getting congested again. I-66 is getting congested again. And of course the, the toll roads are seeing some, some traffic. Um, but so, so, you know, where we anticipated maybe, uh, even, even more ridership at this point, um, just that uncertainty of, of, and, and you know the uncertainty of of when a when a you know vaccine will be provided. And I think the other element that weighs into that was you know we're at that time now where where um, you know folks with uh, school age children and their respective uh, school districts and stuff they too have some level of uncertainty you know as it relates to ensuring an optimal you know safe and healthy environments for for students. So a lot of students are. Are maintaining that that uh, that virtual environment. In some cases, a, a hybrid. Uh, all of that to say is, you know, I, I'll, I'll just kind of sum it up. You know, it's not for us. It's not a matter of if our ridership will come back. Uh, ridership will come back. The question is when. And I don't think anybody really knows uh, the a definitive answer at this point. It's 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 time will tell. That's about the best uh, you can do, but no, doubtless uh, uh, you'll be prepared for uh, for when the riders do do come back. Absolutely. Okay. 
So I wanted to uh, talk to you uh, a bit about your, uh, your military background, uh, United States Navy, uh, a petty officer. And uh, it's, it's well known in this industry, in the rail industry, that military veterans make excellent railroaders for a variety of reasons. Discipline, um, I guess that's really important has, uh, how that relates to, uh, uh, to safety. It's just the, the, the culture uh, just fits in very well with, uh, with running a good railroad, okay? Uh, um, I'm sure I'm not saying anything you don't already know, but uh, I, I'd like to ask you, uh, speaking as a, as a, a military veteran, what, what skills were you able to bring to, to your railroad career? Uh, the, of course, first with, with Wabtec on the uh, locomotive on the power side, uh, and then to v, VRE on the, on the operating side. So I guess sort of a uh, I wouldn't call it a technology transfer, but maybe a mindset transfer, if you will. That's a, yeah, maybe a, a, a skill set. A mm -hmm. You're right, a mindset transfer. Um, you know, the things that come to mind, you mentioned that when, when you transition from the military to any, basically any career field, um, you know, safety being paramount, it's not a hard sell for a military veteran. Uh, we you know, in the military, we, we lived and breathed positive safety culture. So being, you know, adapting to those in a, in, or in adapting to that environment is, uh, you know, from a, from a skill transferability perspective, um, very, you know, uh, very low resistance, let's put it that way. Um, but, but I think in, a, in addition to that, uh, without using up all the cliches, you know, yes, I think on a leadership stamp, from a leadership standpoint at various levels, um, yes, that, that positive work ethic, discipline. Um, but I think specifically for me, when I, when I think of that question, it's that, you know, basically in both cases, when I, um, you know, VRE is only the third job I've ever had in my career. And you've already stated what the other two were. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, um, it's, it's that basically, um, I, I brought with me from the military, a solutions based approach, I think centered around just keeping things in front of me, um, with, and, and that provides the ability to, uh, um, you know, to, to ensure nothing sneaking up, you know, sneaking up behind me, if you will. And I, I equate that to, and I was in the propulsion engineering field or propulsion engineering rates. And, and when you're down there, you know, steaming along and uh, you're responsible for, you know, large main engines, uh, ship service generators, et cetera, you have these big, not unlike like driving your car, you have this instrument panel in front of you, but, but on a ship, they're very large and there's a lot of information there. And symbolically, by keeping all of that in front of you, you're able to facilitate more timely solutions and you're able to react to things in a more timely way. So, um, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a big, a big element of the, of the, my previous military life that was brought to the, uh, you know, the, the civilian career, if you will. Um, but with that, from a solutions, you know, with a solutions based approach. Um, you have to be somewhat relentless without being overbearing on pursuing those, those solutions. So in other words, 
just not have the information in front of you, do something with it and, uh, and go get it done. And, and again, without being overbearing and, and of course, leveraging the different assets that you have, both human, uh, technology, so forth. Um, and, and I think the other, another couple of elements may be just that, just that lead by example. I'm a, I'm a hands-on leader. Uh, always have been hands-on manager. I don't consider myself a micromanager, but I do reserve meddling rights. Um, and, and, I, and I will meddle uh, <laughs> when I need to, if you will, um, only when I have to. And that's, and that's only to, you know, again, uh, if I have to work with others, uh, whether it's on the, the human asset side or the technology side or whatever, uh, all in the name of uh, providing a solution. So you tra- you transitioned from uh, in the U.S. Navy from naval propulsion systems, uh, diesel uh, or diesel electric, uh, whatever those might be, large marine engines to large uh, large engines for ground transportation, locomotive power. Not an unlikely transition. Um, yeah, actually, the uh, you know the emergency diesel generators and the similar control systems, similar power plants that we had on board ships were the, were the tiny, were the tiny engines, mm-hmm. you know, they were the smaller ones, but they were equivalent size to, to locomotives and stuff like that. So yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I didn't know it, you know, going into it or even coming out of it at the time, but, uh, but yeah, it all, it all translated quite well. So then you, uh, you transitioned to, uh, uh, to VRE, uh, on, on the operating side and working with uh, positive train control and and you were in charge of that of that program uh, sure. uh, talk about that uh, that's uh, the sixth railroad overall freight and passenger to uh, to have PTC full fully operational I would call that a remarkable accomplishment just to how, how did you do it when I reflect on it um, you know it just took a it just took a great team with great professional relationships. And I encourage people that are, you know, and in, in, in not just staff, but our contracted service providers and others that, you know, it's okay, even though we work for different uh, entities, our paychecks come from different entities and stuff, it's okay to gather up sometimes. And if you, if you truly wanna solve, or if you truly wanna accomplish something, just, just effectively take your hats off. Don't, don't wear the hat, you know, you know, use your, use your skills, use your ability, use your experience to solve these potential issues. And I think that was a, that was a, uh, a good example. PTC was a great example actually of, of deploying that, that uh, management style, if you will, and others adapting that uh, simply because for VRE, VRE could not have implemented PTC on its own. I mean, um, in addition to I mean, not unlike other entities, you know, we had to go out and procure the, the technology, but frankly, we had to figure out where to put it. And, uh, and uh, you know, we already had equipment that was designed. Uh, fortunately, we were able to, uh, to have locomotives that were delivered to us in 2010, 2011 with provisions for PTC, but we had cab control cars that we were looking at like there was, we had no idea where we were gonna stuff all this equipment. And so when you put people together, uh, folks from consulting firms, folks from the 
uh, manufacturing side and you place them in a car and and ask them to you know put together cardboard cutouts and all sorts of different uh, uh, you know different methods in which to to equip these cars and again with that hats off approach it doesn't matter who you work for and you're not going to offend anybody if you're criticizing somebody else's product or service or something like that we need to arrive at a solution so we established that early on and that just simply carried through the entire process and you had to interface with two class one railroads norfolk southern and csx um and uh, of course the systems have have to be interoperable as, as we well right. know uh would you say that that was the the biggest um, problem to uh, to address the interoperability i think at at the point where and again being a solely a tenant railroad and um you know heavily reliant on the host railroad um you know, we were fortunate to be able to test with CSX and Norfolk Southern. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we went live and we started going under enforcement, um, you know, there there were technology challenges, if you will, not necessarily just from CSX or Norfolk Southern, but from the onboard technology as well. And I think the, the key thing there was, uh, go back to your previous question, again, keeping all of the, you know, just simply keeping all the issues in front of us, continue to work those. There, there were some tough, tough challenges ahead of us, particularly when we went live and we went under full enforcement and our on-time performance, our reliability started going down. And uh, that's something that we're not used to here at BRE. We uh, pride ourselves on high reliability, high on-time performance. Um, and uh, that started to go down and we, we ended up, a period of time with less than desirable performance and uh, you know but for, fortunately these teams that I'm talking about they stuck with it they kept all the issues in front of them kept solving for those issues and of course our loyal riders stuck with us as well which is just as important. Can you explain uh, I don't think a lot of people understand why uh, PTC enforcement uh, would impact uh, or how it would impact on time performance. What maybe if you can go through some of the things that can happen uh, that that would cause a um, well, it tra in, in simple terms, a train to come to a halt when it maybe it doesn't have to. Sure, I think the the thing that we experience predominantly uh, could be placed in that large bucket called communications. And uh, you can test, you can test, you can test, but until you go out there. And, and you effectively saturate the system, and I'm talking the PTC system, until you can saturate that system with numerous trains and numerous activities, uh, going out there at midnight with one train up and down the track when there's no other, you know, no other train traffic out there and everybody focused on that one test train, a whole different, whole different, uh, uh, environment when you're actually out there live you're under you know you're carrying passengers in a in in the the peak of the peak commute windows and there's you know there's there's 16 northbound VRE trains and there's eight or ten northbound Amtrak trains in the morning and then of course CSX and Norfolk Southern are trying to weave their their traffic in the uh, network so I think it was 
predominantly from that perspective, once we saturated the system with multiple trains, then that, you know, it's a good and bad thing. We needed to do it. It's a good thing that we did it and we flushed out, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the technology challenges and, you know, and again, my hat's off predominantly to the CSX team and the Norfolk Southern teams because they had, they had these implementation teams stood up to where they could just sit there and pick, pick these issues apart, resolve them. But again, this took a little bit of time. It took, it took uh, several months. Um, so, so yeah, predominantly on the communication side. And then of course, throughout all of that, uh, as everybody was implementing at various levels at the time, you know, onboard software revisions and, and just managing all of that. And on top of that too, uh, I, I don't think VRE was any different up to that point. VRE, uh, you know, we stood up simulators, we trained our onboard train crews, our engineers, and even our conductors on simulators. But it, but again, it's a little different when you get out there live and you have all these other activities going on. And now you have PTC on top of, you know, the normal radio traffic and, and so on and so forth. So I, I, I think overall, Looking back, um, you know, it, it definitely could have been a lot worse. So as we started early spring or late late spring, full implementation, it took us through the summer and even into the beginning of the of fall uh, of nineteen. Uh, you know, to to really to really work things out, if you will. Pre COVID, we were back to what we would deem as is is. Pre-PTC normal with all the activity, uh, passenger, commuter, and freight traffic in this uh, in this service area, all work, working under full PTC enforcement and all the other ancillary things that go with that, and all of our performance metrics were up. Um, so, so we had, frankly, we had rolled, you know, rolled into an environment where where, where PTC wasn't affecting us. Uh, too much, but then you know, COVID hits and all of us reduce our service levels. So, so PTC, as we know, is is complicated and it is time consuming, and it it isn't implemented overnight. Um, how did you communicate with your ridership uh, to try to explain to your customers who probably don't even know what PTC is? They're all they're concerned about my train arrives at, at this time. I get on the train and I and I and I it's expected to arrive at my destination at a certain time. You know, how did you explain uh, service impacts? Uh, how did you help your customers to understand what was happening during the implementation process? Uh, great question. Um, you know, that process took us about 10 years, you know, from from when. Uh, when PTC, you know, the, uh, you know, the regu regulation was first put into effect. And uh, to some degree, uh, we would inform, you know, our riders or the public on our progress. But again, when, 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 when we would inform our riders or, or again, the public and, and the implementation date was still five years out, um, not not a big not a newsworthy topic if you will, but as we got closer to implementation, we did do a lot of uh, we did push out a lot of messaging that said that you know this is uh, 
This is something that we have to do. People, uh, our writers, the public in general, understood, you know, how important this was. Uh, we didn't, at some level, we didn't sugarcoat it. We said that we were going to have some bumps. We were going to have some growing pains. Um, and uh, and as we got into it, again, we didn't sugarcoat it. We we messaged it. We let people know that, uh, you know, that uh, that sort of that that post implementation uh, prior to finalization on on the revenue service side. Uh, yeah, we were just having some issues and, and, and we would try to be as as open and upfront with the public as possible. Um, and, and, and I think from a timing perspective, going into the summer months of our implementation where our ridership gets a little soft anyway, that, that may have helped us a little bit. Um, and, uh, but nonetheless, I, you know, you know, looking back at it, I wish, you know, of course, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We know how to do this perfectly now. Uh, we didn't at the time, but, uh, I don't think anybody did. Yeah. Um, but the good thing is we won't have to do it again. Getting back to your relationships with, uh, with Norfolk Southern and, uh, and CSX, uh, now, over the years, uh, I, you know, quite quite familiar with I'm uh, I'm quite familiar with uh, with the relationships, and actually, I uh, witnessed a lot of very beneficial uh, projects in terms of uh, um, infrastructure upgrades and operating agreements and other things. So the, the relationship, from my experience, has come a long way. But now, now things have, may have changed a bit under this precision scheduled railroading, where you know, the, the, the mantra now is uh, for the freight railroads is we've got longer trains, we've got heavier trains. Uh, has PSR impact, impacted your operations or, or not? Let's go back a couple, two, three years predominantly on the, uh, on the CSX line, uh, CSX being one of our host railroads. There was some level of, of PTC implementation, albeit primarily on the, on the CSX side. And then, of course, uh, precision scheduled railroading uh, was being implemented. Um, you know, there there were some conflicts. I think once CSX went to, uh, in addition to precision scheduled railroading, but actually went to, uh, uh, you know, operating, you know, longer trains using um, distributive power. That was actually, I think, a big breakthrough for for, for this region or for this network. PSR indicate, or PSR, the roadmap for that was, you know, of course, longer trains. And in this territory, distributed power had never been used previously. There were, you know, some, some growing pains, more probably just from the crew qualification side. But, but I think once, once that occurred and, in CSX, and it didn't take that long for CSX to implement that. Uh, again, once the distributed power um, uh, method of operation was implemented, uh, it, it, we really went back to being able to operate somewhat harmoniously between CSX, uh, BRE, and Amtrak. So the 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 operative word in PSR is precision, which should mean should <laughs> uh, the that the the freight train movements are perhaps more predictable, 
uh, some have said that, well, that could actually help shared use operations. Amtrak has said that for their long distance network. Uh, have, you, have you found that? Have you found the, the, the freight train movements uh, more, uh, more predictable, more scheduled? I'll just um, I'll just go back to this time period. Let me let me just say from last uh, let's go September October of last year 2019 up to March of of 2020 because it was at that point where again um, you know precision scheduled railroading from the CSX standpoint and, and implementation of PTC started to sort of mesh together up to and including VRE's PTC implementation and of course Antrax's PTC implementation in the territory. All of that to say is, is all of those, a lot of those elements were happening at the same time and probably starting about September, October of, of last year, 2019 we could already see a lot of normalization there. Um, but it wasn't just PSR. Again, it was PTC implementation that played a, played a role in that as well. And, and just kind of fast forward to, say, January of this year, um, albeit, you know, some of the freight traffic might be, might be down slightly after the uh, Christmas season. But, but, but all of us, CSX, VRE, and Amtrak, the performance of our respective uh, operations just almost started to flourish back pre pre PSR pre uh, PTC implementation time periods. In other words, our on time performance, our reliability was going up. I know Amtrak's was, and uh, CSX was pretty happy with with their ability to move trains in this territory. And then, of course, March and COVID hit. VRE is uh, rather unique in that you have many stakeholders uh, in, in the state of Virginia. You, know, you look at a commuter railroad like New Jersey Transit, uh, it's one state report, uh, reports sort of to the governor, uh, the MTA, whether they like it or not, or, uh, <laughs> reports to the governor. Uh, that's a whole different, uh, different scenario. But, but VRE, uh, you have numerous uh, stakeholders. Uh, so uh, what are some of the challenges uh, associated with uh, with having to satisfy not only your customers but your your stakeholders? The thing I always remind myself of is is just just put it out front. There's a lot of soft skills required, you know, to manage all of those stakeholders, and 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 those stakeholders need to be managed at at different levels. Fortunately, the leadership you know, of our, of our parent commissions and subsequently to our operations board has always been, and this even predates me, this goes back to the time when VRE was first established is that, particularly at the operations board level is, is, is the, the members of the operations board, they, uh, and, and I'll say this from a, you know, just kind of a proverbial standpoint, they come into the proverbial room, if you will, it's, you know the political affiliations, all that, are sort of left at the at left at the uh, entrance. You know, right there by the uh, coat rack and stuff. Everybody comes in, sit around the table, and it's truly about BRE, and um, and and that tradition is carried over um, from year after year. We have some 
you know, very long-standing operations board members uh, from the region that have maintained that that uh, that continuity, if you will, um, and uh, and so I think the rest of the region kind of feeds off of that a little bit when they see a a a you know an operations board or a or a political body come together for the you know the purposes of the VRE operations, and they see that you know, that collaboration and that coordination or whatever, um, it, it's pretty powerful. And, and, and the, the VRE operations board gains a lot of respect in the region for that. So, um, so that's where, to some level, where it all starts. But, um, but it, does take, uh, it, it does take a lot of, there has to be a focused approach on on maintaining and managing those those professional relationships and not just at the you know at the governing level or the you know the uh, um, you know at the at the different jurisdictional level uh, at the end of the day uh, VRE has to be you know a a good investment for the region as well so we take that from the operations side and and we permeate that to you know all of you know, not just staff, but the different, you know, stakeholders at that level. It takes about approximately 200 people a day um, to uh, operate VRE, and that cuts across all lines, not just VRE staff, which is which is roughly about 50 people, but it's the, the CSX staffs, the Norfolk Southern staffs, the Amtrak staffs, everybody that is, you know, that is, um, uh, you know, either directly assigned or, or very influential to VRE on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, we have to be mindful of that and we have to manage that. So um, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's, you know, there, there are some challenging times, but it kind of goes back to the, uh, uh, I think what I, what I alluded to before, it's that concept where, you know, let's put all the f issues in front of us so we can see them and let's manage, you know, the issues in front of us and, um, and, and, and do that with conviction and passion and, um, and, and stay, you know, the other piece of that is, is really stay integral with our passengers. You know, um, we've got a good rapport with our passengers. We have various, you know, very direct methods for our passengers to, uh, communicate with us and so i think the other key there is is listening to them you know let them you know allow their voice to be heard and and make sure that we're not losing sight of the fact that you know at the end of the day it is about it is about moving people in the region and uh, and they have choices and we want them to being very vre specific we want their choice to be mm -hmm. uh, on the vre train so let's talk a bit about uh capital needs uh what what is in the pipeline uh, you, you've got a you've got a mix of uh, uh of rolling stock uh power and uh and passenger coaches uh uh what uh what what what's the state what's the state of the rolling stock now and what what are your plans for either rehabbing or 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 replacing uh, equipment vre now is uh uh going on 28 years i think of uh, of operations very good. Yeah. Yeah. 28 pushing 29. Mm -hmm. Still a youngster. Even during this, uh, the, the COVID period, um, we still, we are still pushing capital projects um, as it relates to, um, 
the uh, the Transforming Rail in Virginia, which is a uh, which is an initiative uh, led by the Commonwealth of Virginia, whereby uh, uh, ultimately uh, per, ultimately there will be a, uh, a a separation of passenger commuter rail um, commuter rail, of course, being in Northern Virginia and freight and uh, and that was a uh, that was a uh, a program that was announced last december uh both by the governor and, and csx and and others so at that very high level uh, that is somewhat transforming uh at some level what we're what we're doing at the vre level um but what specifically what we're doing is is modifying some of our long-range planning uh, to ensure that we can integrate with that. So, for example, uh, you know, currently we've got about $150 million, uh, um, you know, capital improvement program. About, um, about 75% of that is, uh, is um, not just... Uh, uh, rehabilitating stations or or uh, in some cases there's a uh, you know it's a adding capacity to those stations maybe uh, lengthening platforms second platforms uh, and a lot of other things that are that are encompassed in there we haven't uh, even in the COVID environment we haven't stopped um, we continue to pursue that that capital improvement pro program uh, from the from the rolling stock side, there's there's a rolling stock. Uh, we're out there right now in a in a uh, a joint procurement with Chicago Metro for some additional cars to accommodate the. Uh, um, you know we have we have train sets that are of varying lengths. We want to standardize that that those lengths, and um, and of course our our locomotives are uh, just barely ten years young. So. Uh, we uh, we stood up a life cycle maintenance uh, uh, philosophy or concept, if you will, on how we maintain rolling stock. So uh, we just, um, and of course, in, in order to do that, uh, infrastructure uh, at some level is required. We just uh, uh, have uh, awarded uh, some projects, one specifically for a life cycle and over life cycle overhaul and upgrade facility at one of our maintenance and storage facilities to support that overall program. And so uh, we're pretty excited about that. In addition to just, uh, uh, you know, uh, station expansion, station enhancements, our, our six-year improvement program, like I said, uh, about $850 million worth. It's uh, roughly about 88% uh, fully funded. Um, so uh, a lot of projects in the in the uh, pipeline and and frankly we operate out of 19 stations including washington union station and and that that six-year improvement program includes something at all of those stations from an overall enhancement standpoint so yeah that that continues and um we will be uh like i said looking at uh, additional rail cars here and uh, at some point in the future, uh, potentially additional locomotives and yet additional rail cars from there. So the uh, um, gallery style cars, those, uh, that configuration ha has worked well for you then, I would say. It, it, it has, it has. And, and I'm sure you know, 
and, uh, and your audience probably knows that we, uh, over the years, we have collaborated at some level uh, because that, that gallery style car works for Chicago Metro as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, uh, and we're at, we're, we, we've, we, we are currently in a joint procurement with Chicago Metro for additional cars, not only for our service, but for their service as well. And we've always worked with them. Um, I say always the last, you know, decade or better on, on car procurement simply because that gallery style car works for them, works for us. Uh, unfortunately, moving forward, um, the, you know, the manufacturer of that gallery style car, uh, it's no longer manufacturing those in, uh, in the U S. So we've had to, uh, you know, through a procurement process, which we're not completed with, so I won't comment too much, but you know, we've had to adapt and overcome a little bit with that. But again, um, I don't expect that to be, you know, materially different than, than, you know, previous cars, um, same basic functions, same basic, uh, performance, et cetera. And, uh, and, and, because in a lot of a lot of respects, our operation could be considered not at the volume, but similar to the uh, the Chicago Metro operation. So you have then pretty much standardized on on the gallery uh, car for your yes. entire fleet. Yes, we have we have a hundred one hundred gallery cars that are all the same. Which which again, I've I've only been in the the railroad industry about thirty years, but some of the some of the uh, folks that have been in it longer would suggest that that's an ideal situation to be in, is to have a standard fleet of passengers. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, I'm enjoying it right now, but nonetheless, that's not going to be, uh, that's likely not to be 100% uh, the way we do things going forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, your, the locomotive fleet now is uh, uh, primarily it's it's the uh mpi the with mp36 or 40 MP, you're using mp36s uh, mm -hmm. again uh, all 20 the same um yeah we'll be looking at at uh, new locomotives here in the near future as well additional locomotives so growth is uh, uh growth is in the pipeline absolutely we uh, even in the uh the, the period that we're in now we went into covid into this period We've had to adjust a lot of things in, you know, frankly, some of the things that we've learned during this per period, we're likely, particularly from a, uh, you know, just the way that we, that we uh, clean cars and do that type of stuff. Those are, those are, could be considered things that will continue to carry on even in a post COVID world. But, um, but, but frankly, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. It's it's caused us, you know, from a ridership standpoint, to uh, to pull back just a little bit, run a reduced service. But you know, for for us, it's uh, the mindset that we have and the support that we have from the the region and specifically, you know, our elected bodies is that uh, you know our ridership will come back. Um, it's not a matter of if; it's just a matter of when. And a lot of these longer term, uh, you know, growth objectives and growth perspectives. They may take on a little bit different, uh, you know, view, if you will, uh, but we're still, uh, we're plowing ahead. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to continue pushing these capital improvements and uh, continue to pave the way. You know, we're, we're in it for the long haul. 
and uh, and and COVID is just going to be uh, recorded as a slight bump in the rail for it. Rich, uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, again, Kellyanne. Thank you for uh, facilitating this. Uh, more in the series with com- with the Commuter Rail Coalition to come. Stay healthy, stay well, and have a safe day. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. You as well. <laughs>